0: It's a green thing in front of me. I'm sure most of you noticed. Probably all of you here have gotten gifts that have been special. I'd like for you to think about some of those. And this is one that I got. I remember being a boy. In our community, we had an MCC relief sale a fundraiser that happened every year, and Mom paid way too much for this tractor so she could get it for me. I still have the original box. It now sits on my shelf and collects dust. It doesn't get played with anymore very much, but kind of a special gift for me, Mom gave me. Some of you men will know what I mean when I say you don't feel like you're quite dressed without a pocket knife in your pocket. That's how I've felt for many years. It's just something that usually goes with me. Well, this particular one is a, an old-timer. It's a little two-blade version. And I think this is the first pocket knife Dad gave to me. And it's not one that I've often carried, but it's a special gift. And I think a dad, even though he's gone, it's what he used to carry. He used to carry a little old timer in his pocket. It's a reminder of him. And if we'd go around the room, we could probably have all kinds of stories like that. All these things that, that are meaningful. Somebody gave it to me. It means something. Well, today we're going to go back to John 14, and we're going to talk about a gift. It's a gift that Jesus gave to his disciples. And I'd like to cover way too many verses today. I feel like I'm just skimming the surface, and we'll maybe have to come back and park here later again and get a few more nuggets out of the passage but you'll remember last time we were talking about the marriage analogy from the ancient Jewish culture in which see we have a number of visitors here I'll do a very brief recap but in ancient Jewish culture a part of the process of a man and woman becoming betrothed or engaged was a process of the agreement being made, dad handing the groom a cup of wine, the groom offering it to the bride and saying, this cup is my covenant to you. Will you take it? And we hear that language and we think of the communion table. That's what the disciples heard when Jesus, just a few chapters ago here in, in the upper room, he said, this cup is the covenant of my blood. This is my body. Will you take it? In essence, will you marry me? The disciples took it. In that analogy, it goes on. John 14 is filled with marriage talk. He says, let not your heart be troubled. In my father's house are many mansions. I go to prepare a place for you. Similar to a groom going to get a place ready for a bride. And now we have, in beginning in verse 8 and following, we have the gift from the groom to a bride. I don't know that this was always done, but I understand that in that Jewish culture, there was at least sometimes a gift that the groom would leave with the bride. I'm going away, but here's my gift to you. It's a reminder of our relationship, and it's a reminder that I'm coming back. Jesus did that for the church. He gave us the gift of the Holy Spirit. It's a reminder of our relationship with Jesus and a reminder of Christ's return. He will come again. In the meantime, we have the Holy Spirit. In fact, in the epistles, you'll find language like we're sealed by the Spirit. I think this is what it's referring to. It's the promise that Jesus will come again, and we've been given this gift. While I am away, here's the gift that Jesus is giving to his children, to his disciples. So what I'm going to do following here is we're going to read verses. Oh, wait, before we do that, let's just get our bearings of where we are. In the big scheme, in the, the bigger picture of the outline of John, in chapter 13, we had the supper, the last supper, the feet-washing service, the betrayer was revealed. At the end of chapter 13, and going all the way up through the end of chapter 17, Jesus is having this lengthy discourse. In the upper room, at the end of chapter 14, he gives instructions. <coughs> excuse me, he says, Let's go hence. He says, let's get up and let's go uh, out. And so they're going to a different place now at the end of chapter 14. Where we're at today is still in the upper room, but it's the last thing. Chapters 15, 16, and 17 apparently happened either while they were walking from Jerusalem to the Mount of Olives or maybe in the Garden of Gethsemane. But chapter 14 is still in Uh, in the upper room here. The text is verses 8 to 31, and I'm going to organize it by thought. We're going to not read it in its entirety at the beginning here. Rather, we're going to read it in these segments. And the reason for doing that is because a couple of the segments have the same... Uh, primary idea but found at different places in the passage. Jesus repeated them and I think it was significant that he repeated them but for discussion here this morning I want to group them together by thought. So I'm going to invite you all to read with me the text on the screen and it will capture those groupings by thought. So let's all read together beginning in verse 8. Philip saith unto him, Lord, show us the Father, and it sufficeth us. Jesus saith unto him, Have I been so long time with you, and yet hast thou not known me, Philip? He that hath seen me hath seen the Father. And how sayest thou then, Show us the Father? Believest thou not that I am in the Father, and the Father in me? The words that I speak unto you I speak not of myself, But the Father that dwelleth in me, he doeth the works. Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father in me, or else believe me for the very work's sake. This is the first thought. Very simply put, is that Jesus and the Father are one. Jesus was physically present on earth, and yet he's saying, and he says this in other places, I didn't group all of these, but you'll find phrases within some of the other readings in the chapter where it says basically the same thing. It, it's me doing what God says. It's me doing what the Father says. The Father and I are one. Philip, you've been with me for three years. You still haven't made this connection? It's a little bit what Jesus is saying. Haven't you known? Don't you understand that if you know me, you know the Father? It was a very personal response to Philip. And I don't think he was... Uh, chastising or scolding Philip it was just Philip I've been here you've seen me and then he goes on through talking about it. he says the words come from the father as do the works both and I think it's important to note that both the words of Jesus and the works of Jesus came from the father and it's one of the things that was striking to me as I considered the ramifications of that you know we often say well there's the the words of Jesus, they're in red in some Bibles. If you have a red letter edition, uh, we'll get to the Holy Spirit in a little bit in talking about what His job description is. But it's important to remember that what Jesus is saying is not just something that's to be lightly pushed aside. It's the voice of God Almighty, and we te- in our minds we tend to separate the persons of the three persons of the Godhead and that's fine but remember they're also all one and what we hear speaking is as though God from the throne room of heaven has said this and we have it the words and the works of Jesus are from the father Jesus ends the, the little answer there to return uh going to well, John records this it's I wonder how many things have gotten left out of this passage. I think we have everything we need to know. I don't think we're shortchanged. But John was writing from the perspective of an apostle who wanted to convince people to believe. And that's the way he ends here in verse 11. He takes the thought back to belief. And he will do that again later in the passage where he says, you know, if nothing else, if it's still kind of complicated and mysterious, Just believe me for the very work's sake. The miracles that I've done, they alone are way beyond what you can imagine a man doing. Believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the anointed one, the savior of the world. He was the physical, visible person of God on the earth. And I feel like I'm skimming, but I'm going to continue skimming. So much more could be talked about here. Let's go to the next thought. And that is that not only are Jesus and the Father one, but the disciples have access to the Father through Jesus. It's not just that there's some Godhead somewhere that we don't have access to. No, we do have access to Jesus and to God the Father. Let's read together. Verily, verily, I say unto you, He that believeth on me, the works that I do shall he do also. And greater works than these shall he do, because I go to my Father. And whatsoever ye shall ask in my name, that will I do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If ye shall ask anything in my name, I will do it. I would really love to have a topical discussion sometime on this, these verses. And I would like to know, what do you do with these verses? Whatever you ask in my name, that will I do. Repeated in verse 14. If you shall ask anything in my name, I will do it. And I don't mean to ask this question for any sort of faith destabilizing purpose but rather for us to think about deeply what does this really mean. How many of you have prayed a prayer in Jesus' name and it didn't happen? Probably all of us would raise our hands. Why? Is God somehow reneging on his promise? What's happening? Why is it that we find unanswered prayer? He's saying here, in fact, verse 12, this is fascinating. He says that someone who believes on me, the works that... I do, he'll do them too. And then beyond that, even greater works will he do. That's interesting. Jesus is saying, you've seen me do significant miracles. My disciples will do even more. And I'm not exactly sure what all that means, but I think it's of interest that Jesus ministered in a very small geographic region. He had many miracles there. And in the early church, that spread. And those miraculous works through the apostles were done the world over. It was not limited to that little, I don't even know what the radius is. Maybe, it's not a radius, it's an oblong shape where Jesus lived and traveled. Maybe 120 miles from top to bottom, from Galilee to southern Judah, a small area that's like going between Knoxville and Chattanooga, basically. And if you can imagine Jesus having worked between the Smoky Mountains and the Tennessee River, that's approximately the same size as where Jesus would have gone. Now he's, it's gone way beyond that. But I'd like for us just to think a little bit, uh, what does this mean, That, or why do we have unanswered prayer? Why do we have such a broad statement and promise by God, and then we end up with not all of our prayers get answered. I don't think we should be disconcerted by that. I think we should look at what is happening, and I'm going to offer a few suggestions for how we might consider that uh, appropriately. Because there certainly are things. You know, this morning we prayed prayers Asking for healing. We've been praying for some healings for years that we have not yet gotten. We thank the Lord when He gives it, but it doesn't always happen the way we think. I think the first thing we have to do is to remember that we're living in a broken world where things are wrong. God is in the process of redeeming it, and that process is not yet complete. And as long as these statements are true, there's no way that everything in the world will be right. In fact, uh, there's, oh, I think I missed this in my notes. There is a verse, I had looked it up, forgot to write it down, where it talks about that as long as you're in this world, you will have trouble. Those were also the words of Jesus. He didn't say that these answers to prayer would automatically mean there's no trouble. I think the uh, King James wording for trouble there is tribulation. There will be great difficulty. So I'd like to give a number of other things that kind of fall underneath this one category that go to a a biblical uh, side of why would would we not have answers to prayer. And I'm not going to go down in the list of all the things. There's prerequisites for prayer. Scripture says it's faith. It's persistence, it's without ceasing, it's with fasting, it's with righteous living. Those things are all talked about in the context of prayer. But I'm going to look at it in more of a general way that has smatterings of those thoughts in it. The first one is that sometimes we just simply ask for the wrong thing. We're limited in what we think seems like a good thing or a right thing. God in his sovereignty, he knows something we don't know. And that's not very surprising. He knows so much that we don't know. Uh, But sometimes our mind is focused on the wrong thing. In fact, James says, you ask and have not because you ask amiss. You're asking for the wrong thing. It's not a proper request. Sometimes we don't believe. Jesus made reference to this many times as he was performing miracles. He would say things like, do you believe that I can do this? Well, be it to you just in the same way that you believe. That was his response that we heard numerous times. Sometimes we don't fast and pray the way we ought to. Jesus, when his disciples were trying to cast out a demon and were unable to do so, he said, this one, this kind only comes out by prayer and fasting. And sometimes I think we ask out of God's will. That's similar to the first one, but with a specific Uh, wrong thing, is that it's against God's will. Uh, 1 John 5, 14 says if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And the truth is that since we don't have a monopoly on understanding God's will, we don't always get that right. But God will answer according to his will. This whole thing of praying, sometime meditate on Romans 8, 26 and 27 in particular. It leads up to the common verse. Caleb quoted it this morning. Uh, we know that all things work together for good to them that love God. But the t- verses just prior to that talk about how sometimes we don't know how to pray. And the Spirit prays things. We don't even, we go into prayer we're needy. We're asking God for help. And the Spirit prays in and through us in ways that we don't even know. It says with groanings that cannot be uttered. Sometimes it may not even be audibly, uh, but the Spirit does help us with our praying. So those are a few thoughts about why do we have unanswered prayer. Uh, I want to encourage you all. Do what Jesus said. Be persistent. Do come to him in faith and believing and trust. He is faithful. He does know What we don't know, he will give the best answer, and he will redeem this broken world. And I say the sooner the better. I look forward to when all that is wrong is made right forever. So disciples have access to the Father. Disciples are also obedient. Let's read together. If you love me, keep my commandments. He that hath my commandments and keepeth them, he it is that loveth me, and he that loveth me shall be loved of my father, and I will love him and will manifest myself to him. Judas saith unto him, not Iscariot, Lord, how is it that thou wilt manifest thyself unto us and not unto the world? Jesus answered and said unto him, If a man love me, He will keep my words, and my Father will love him, and we will come unto him and make our abode with him. He that loveth me not keepeth not my sayings, and the word which ye hear is not mine, but the Father's which sent me. So I'll just once again highlight the very last phrase. It was from a prior thought. Jesus and the Father are one. The words of Jesus come from the Father. If you love me, keep my commandments. We've heard that a lot. We ought to hear that a lot. We ought to live that a lot. Because those who know and keep the commandments of Jesus love him. And then he goes on to say that those who love me with obedience will be loved by me and my father and will experience the revelation of the person of Jesus. You catch that phrase there? I will manifest myself unto him. These things are all linked and once again, I don't think it's so much in a a formulaic fashion where you do this, this happens. Computers are very unforgiving with input and output as are calculators and many other things with numbers. Whatever you put in, that's just what you get barring that some program doesn't malfunction. It's it's a very defined set of things. I don't look at the way Jesus teaches here about obedience as being that way. Well, he certainly wants us to be obedient, and it demonstrates whether or not we love him. In fact, he says the opposite. He says, you don't obey what I say, you don't love me. He makes it very plain that our obedience is linked to whether or not we love God. And I think it goes back to the great commandment. The first commandment, the greatest commandment, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That is the most important thing. I want to note one other phrase here. In verse 23, he says, If you love me, keep my word. So here we have this loving obedience happening. My Father will love him, and we... Here we have a plural pronoun. We, Father and Jesus, we will come to him and make our abode with him. We'll make our house with him. And that's where we, that, that really leads us to the heart of the passage that I want to spend a little more time on. Is that how does that happen? God the Father and his son Jesus, we do not see them visibly living here among us and in us. We don't see that. But he says, if you love me keep my commandments, and then when you love me, this is what happens, and I think the focus is on relationship. The focus is on, I am loving God. I'm serving him, and in that mix of what happens, God is transforming and changing me, and I lovingly obey him. It's what I want to do. I was actually thinking of this, uh, take my life and let it be. We sang the song Eight times in there, it says take. Normally, when we think of taking, it's someone just coming and getting it and removing it. That's not the tenor in which the word take is used there. It's written in the realm of I give it. I'm giving it to you. Something I've had to think about is can true stewards of God be rich? maybe a little bit of a trick question, but I think we're thinking about because if I have $100,000 in the bank and I have given that to the Lord and it's actually his, it's him who's rich, not me, or a million or a billion or whatever the number is, you plug that number in. But if everything I have has been given, it's not like God's coming and taking it. And I think that's the framework in which that song was written. Take my life and let it be. I'm giving my life. You take it now, Lord, and do something with it. Take my silver and my gold. No, it doesn't mean take my bank account to zero. It just means everything I have is yours. Take my will. No, don't remove my will from me, but I give my will to you. You take it, make it your own. And I think that's what we're doing in this passage of loving obedience. God, I love you. I'm gonna follow you I'm gonna be obedient to you and in that whole mix we're being transformed and changed I've given myself to Jesus and it's demonstrated that way so how will Jesus and the father come and make their home in his children oh I see I missed a slide here I'll quickly click through that so you can see it obedience to Jesus demonstrates love for him and unlocks the relationship of love from Jesus and his father. And I say unlocks the relationship because God's love is unconditional. He unconditionally loves everybody lost and saved. Our obedience to him simply puts that relationship in place. God wants that with everybody. Disobedience to the teachings of Jesus demonstrates a lack of love for him. We have words of comfort and words of warning. They're both present. I'll take the comfort. That's where I want to live. Loving obedience to Jesus. How does, he, how does he live with us? Well, he does it in the gift of the Spirit. You remember the gift box that was on the screen earlier? Here we get to the heart of the message. While Jesus is away, the Spirit is present. It's like he's going away to prepare a place for us like a groom does. But in the meantime, he says, I'm not going to leave you comfortless. You're going to have my spirit. The spirit of Jesus will be there. Let's read beginning in verse 16. And I will pray the Father and he shall give you another comforter that we may abide with you forever. Even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it sees him not, neither knows him, but ye know him for he dwelleth with you and shall be in you. I will not leave you comfortless. I will come to you yet a little while, and the world seeth me no more. But ye see me, because I live, ye shall live also. At that day ye shall know that I am in my Father, and ye in me, and I in you. And the next screen as well. These things have I spoken unto you, But the Comforter, which is the Holy Ghost, whom the Father will send in my name, he shall teach you all things and bring all things to your remembrance, whatsoever I have said unto you. While I am away, the Spirit will come and live with you forever. He's saying, I'm going away but there's going to be a part of me that's still here in the form of the Holy Spirit. He's here with you. He's going to live in you and with you. He uses that uh, both of those. We'll see that in a little bit. And he will never leave you. It talks about this living forever. You live because I live. He'll never leave you. He'll be present in all of life. That's earthly life and through eternity. For the child of God... We can live in his presence now. It's actually a little foretaste of eternity. In eternity, we think, well, we're going to be in the presence of God for all eternity, and certainly we will in a different way than we can here. But we get a touch of that because God sent his Holy Spirit to be with us and to live in us and with us. He is the comforter, he is the spirit of truth. That's why we go to him we need to know what truth is and we need comfort and we can find that from him and here's the phrase that I've kept alluding to it specifically says he will be in you and he will be with you I find that very comforting and now more of a job description he will teach you all things Jesus said that I have taught you and I think that this applies in a couple of different ways I think this applies to both the apostles and to believers throughout history. Specifically, I believe it applied to the apostles because he said, I'll bring to your remembrance the things that I have taught you. And he he did that. The Spirit allowed these men to remember the things that were needful for us to have a written copy of God's word, a written record of what happened when Jesus was on earth. And the same thing happens to us today. We now have the written record. And as we take this and put it in our hearts and lives and memorize and meditate and it becomes a part of us, guess what? The Spirit can once again start to remind, oh yeah, you remember that verse? You remember that? Jesus said that. The same kind of thing can happen in a slightly different way. He will come and teach us all things. I'd like for you to turn the page in your Bible, if you are open there, and I'd like for you to look at some verses I don't have on the screen in thinking about what does the Holy Spirit do. In John chapter 16, verses 7 to 15, I would like for us to just briefly consider what he says here. John 16, verse 7. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is expedient or advantageous or necessary or good for you that I go away. For if I go not away, the Comforter or the Spirit will not come to you. But if I depart, I will send him to you. And let's like, just pause there a little bit. That is, it, think about from the disciples' perspective. They're saying, Jesus, you've been telling us for the last months that you're going to leave us. We don't like that. We do not want to be left alone. We don't have this thing figured out. And yet, Jesus is saying, no, I'm going to leave. And now in verse 7 here that we just read, he said, it's actually good that I leave because unless I leave, the Holy Spirit won't come. I'm leaving so he can come. And once again... It's this whole thing in my mind of, look at what happened geographically. Instead of Jesus living and walking in a region the size of the Tennessee Valley, now he's all over the whole globe in the form of his spirit. Believers everywhere can tap into the access to the Father and the power of his spirit. Verse 8, and when he has come... Here's some things he will do. He will reprove the world of sin. He will convict of what is wrong and of righteousness. He will also teach what is right and of judgment of sin because they believe not on me, of righteousness because I go to my father and you see me no more. And I think what he means there is he said, okay, I won't be here to guide you in daily living and to teach you, but the spirit's going to come. And he's going to do that. That's how he convicts of righteousness. In verse 11, and of judgment, because the prince of this world is judged. I have yet many things to say to you, but you can't bear them now. Get that? Jesus is saying, there's a lot I need to tell you, but you can't handle it. What's the solution? Howbeit, when he, the spirit of truth, is come, he will guide you into all truth. For he shall not speak of himself, but whatsoever he shall hear, that shall he speak, and he will show you things to come. I think it's important that we capture something there. there are, there's significant discussion in the Christian world, including in conservative Anabaptist circles, about what does it mean and how does the Holy Spirit work today. And without delving deeply into that argument, I think we have to do two things. One is that we have to recognize the Spirit does still work today, but the second thing is he will never contradict the revealed word of God. And there are people who fall in ditches all over this topic that I think make it more complex than it has to be. We do have a written record and the Spirit will not go against what God has revealed about himself. But neither is it correct to put the Spirit in a box and say that the things that happened in the early church belong in the early church and nowhere else. And unfortunately, there are some of those trains of thoughts that see at least portions of the work of the Holy Spirit to have ended. I believe the Holy Spirit is very much alive and well, living in and among us and we submit to him and allow him to work in his way. He is the representation of Almighty God. It's him telling us what to do, not the other way around. And I think that's one of those ditches when people get the idea that they can uh, somehow manipulate Almighty God and the work of the Spirit to look a certain way that may or may not be correct. Let's finish the last couple verses here in John 16. He will glorify me, for he shall receive of mine and shall show it unto you. All things that the Father hath are mine, therefore said I, that he shall take of mine and shall show it to you. Once again, reinforcing that God the Father, Jesus the Son, and the Holy Spirit are all working together as one. They are one almighty God. And that brings us to the benediction of this passage, and I want to wrap it up with this with a few thoughts of we have access to God, God the Father is one, we have this gift of the Holy Spirit, and now there's this, it's not really a a pronouncing a blessing, and yet it has a little bit of a feel of that, and I think it's where we make this very applicable to us today. So what happens for us today as we have the Holy Spirit? Let's read together. Verse 27, peace I leave with you, my peace I give unto you, not as the world giveth, give I unto you. Let not your heart be troubled, let it be afraid. Ye have heard how I said unto you, I go away and come again to you. If ye loved me, ye would rejoice, because I said, I go unto the Father, for my Father is greater than I. And now I have told you before it come to pass, that when it is come to pass, ye might believe. Hereafter I will not talk much with you, for the prince of this world cometh, and hath nothing in me. But that the world may know that I love the Father, and as the Father gave me commandment, even so do. let, let us go hence. Jesus gives peace, not like the world gives. If you think about the kind of peace that the world has to offer, it's based on circumstances, it's usually temporary, and it is based on external things, meaning not within my being, outside of my person. The peace of Jesus is the exact opposite. It's truth-based, it's eternal, and it's internalized in his children. It is not circumstantial. God's peace calms anxious hearts and drives away fear. That's why he says, let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. And I sometimes feel pretty wimpy because I can see things in the world that, if I would allow them to, would be very frightening. Leave with you. We can take those frightening things and we can say, but the Spirit is here with me. I need not fear. I need not live in anxiety. Our love for Jesus seeks what's good for God's kingdom. He said here in this passage, He said, if If you love me, you would rejoice. It's like the disciples were getting sad that he's leaving. And Jesus is saying, no, if you love me, you're going to be glad that I'm going to my father. And the application I would make from that is that they, in their perspective, were looking at it selfishly. Of course they didn't want him to go away. None of us would have. But Jesus is saying, if you love me, then submit to what's best for the kingdom of God. And what do we have as a result of him going to be with the Father? We have Jesus at the right hand of God the Father interceding for us. He's our advocate. He's there presenting our case before the Father, identifying us as his children. And as a result, we have a worldwide connection to the Spirit of God. Jesus lived and ministered in a small area and we get the Holy Spirit as a result. So take it home with you. I'm going to do some review, some application here. Jesus and the Father are one. Believe. It was mentioned a couple times. Believe that that is the case and live as though you believe it. The Spirit is one with the Father and with Jesus. They are all one. Didn't really talk about this, but the blessing of the Spirit coming and changing us is that we enjoy the fruit of the Spirit. We enjoy the work of the Spirit. If you would take all of the, the Spirit fruit listed in uh, Galatians 5, if you would take that out of your life, imagine what life would be like without love, joy, peace, patience, gentleness, self control. He just removed all those things life would be very ugly and yet we get to enjoy that because we have the holy spirit enabling us where we can't do it. we can do some of those things on our own but by comparison that is very shallow the spirit of god changes us from the inside out the spirit will empower your loving obedience obedience demonstrates love and invites the presence of god And once again, let's not just look at these phrases as ideals to achieve, let's internalize them, and let's take our hearts and minds to the level where I don't need to be troubled, I don't need to be a fearful person. I can live in calm assurance in the presence of Christ. We live in anxious times. We face uncertain and fearful circumstances, and frequently our emotions reflect the humanity in which we live. And that's not wrong, but I do think it's wrong for us to let those emotions rule us. When Jesus says, let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. We bring those emotions back. We inform them with truth. We inform our emotions of facts and we choose to not believe the lies that our emotions often throw our way and we choose instead to walk with Jesus and trust him. And so I close with the last phrases. Jesus told his disciples, the time in the upper room has ended. He's saying, Get up. Let's go outside. Let's go somewhere else. King James is arise. Let us go hence. You know what Jesus was facing? He knew that that night he would be betrayed. Judas Iscariot had already been sent out to do the, the dirty work. And Jesus knew that. He said, let's go, and he, he faced that. In fact, if you look at the, the end of those verses, let me go back to it. I don't have it in my mind here. He just says in verse 31, that the world may know that I love the Father, and as the Father gave me commandment, even so I do. In the face of Gethsemane and Golgotha, Jesus said, Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. He said, I'm here on a mission. God the Father sent me. I'm going to do it. And I believe that's why he could go through the next several hours, the next number of hours, the next day and a half of his trial and crucifixion in the way that he did. Arise, let us go hence the discourse in the upper room ends but continues on the way to Gethsemane and in the journey of our lives. I'd like to end with one verse from Second Thessalonians that talks about peace. It's the benedic- benediction found there at the end of the book. Second Thessalonians 3, verse 16. Now the Lord of peace himself give you peace always by all means. The Lord be with you all. Read that again. Now the Lord of peace himself give you peace always by all means. That's a lot of peace. And it's what he wishes for us and what I pray for us here at Wellspring and for each of you here. We do have a wonderful gift. And I thank God for it. Let's pray. Lord, we're so grateful for your presence. Through the work of your spirit, you have not left us comfortless, and we praise you. You are a good God, a loving heavenly Father. Thank you so much for sending your spirit to work in us. And I just pray that you would help us to walk in the truth and the reality of that presence. Help us to draw close to you, to allow your spirit to work, to lovingly obey you, not out of duty, but out of a relationship where we want to be with you and to please you. Lord, we have needs here. I pray that you would meet them. I pray that you would empower us to walk in your ways. In Jesus' name, amen.